Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boonwurrung peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to the elders past and present and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. Good morning, Ella. How are you? I'm good. Feeling a little sprightlier than you, I think, this morning, Jake. <laughs> but you've picked it up for showtime. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. I'm I'm looking forward to today's show. I think we've got a few really cool interviews coming up. Yeah, yeah, we've got a good mix of stuff. And um, of course, the election was called recently. So all good knowledge to have, or at least some of the interviews, I think, will be relevant for come mm. decision time. Some uh, spicy decision making to be happening. Yes, mm. yeah. Scott Morrison's finally picked a date, so we'll be waiting with <laughs> finally, <you>. finally. <laughs> and um, what have you got planned for today? Um, I had a really fantastic chat with a refugee activist and folk singer, Dawn Barrington. And I actually met Dawn about four years ago when she was touring around the Central Coast. She'd made a documentary about some of the refugees on Manus Island and what was happening over there and and just highlighting the the treatment and the abuse, essentially, of all these innocent men. And I'd been following her for quite a while and she announced last week that she was coming to Melbourne uh, to help out with a lot of the refugees who have just been freed from the Park Hotel. So we we sat down and had a really great chat Uh, just going into some of the challenges that lie ahead because while all of the refugees have been freed from the Park Hotel, obviously it's a lot of barriers to integrating into normal society and, you know, living some sense of a normal life after what was probably a very traumatic and tumultuous nine years. So I think that'll be really valuable and, and shed some good uh, personal insights into yeah the situation there yeah yeah absolutely and i mean yeah after um for some up to eight or nine years being imprisoned it's um yeah it's not like you can just flip the switch and um that traumatic experience comes to an end um and i think um yeah it was not to compare the experience but to put it in perspective um think about how difficult everyone found it after lockdown to reintegrate into society and that was not a patch on this experience so Mm. yeah um it's really not as simple as just being released yeah absolutely Uh, i know we've got a really um another interview as well at 710 (laughs) or coming up next um which was from our former co-host alice do you want to tell us a bit about that um so yeah we're going to re-listen to an interview that alice did with dr caroline tully who's an honorary fellow in the school of historical and 
philosophical studies at the University of Melbourne. <laughs> I was just editing the interview um, ahead of the show this morning and Alice uh, stumbled over philosophical and I think it got in my head. I couldn't do it myself then. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, Caroline Tully is also a pagan witch um, and she had a chat to Alice about the origins of Easter. So a timely one for this week. Timely. And are you doing anything fun for Easter, Ella? Uh, not really. I'm still, yeah, in the process of moving house. I think I'm just going to take mm. the opportunity to settle in and, yeah, get the last of my things over. Um, I went away on this last weekend we had, actually, um, just for two nights. Um, so, yeah, I think I'll enjoy a night in or a couple of nights in Melbourne while the city's maybe a bit quieter. Mm. Um, and, um, yeah, I don't know if you've notice probably because you're going away but um airbnbs are a little hard to come by there seems to be less available and they're very expensive so oh yes i didn't think it was really the right time for a last minute trip away (laughs) (laughs) fair enough and yeah later on in the show um i we've got claudia dialing in so claudia is with us this morning but remotely so we'll hear from her later she's being covid safe um and gonna broadcast from home today as a precaution um, and she's speaking with Dr. Stephanie Perkis about the chocolate scorecard, your guide to ethically produced chocolate. So another uh, relevant yeah. one ahead of Easter. Loving all the Easter content today. Yeah, very in theme. <laughs> yeah, I, it's so funny. You forget that Easter, well, I forgot that Easter was coming up around the corner. So this is a nice reminder, I suppose. Yeah, it doesn't factor hugely in my yearly schedule, so it's always <laughs> nice to be reminded. <laughs> mm. um, and yeah, I'll be finishing up the show speaking with Jess Abrahams. Um, he's a nature campaigner for the Australian Conservation Foundation. Um, and we're going to be talking about Australia's State of the Environment report, or lack thereof. Um, so it's a mm. five-yearly report, uh, which the government's required to conduct and release. Um, and yeah, I believe it's 12 different topics they look into. So it's a pretty comprehensive, independent study of where we're at. Um, and the government's had the report since December last year and is yet to release it. I think most people wow. are... Or a lot of people are suspecting it's, yeah, to avoid more bad publicity ahead of the election. Um, My God. But I mean, I think we're all pretty aware of um, the government. Just how grim yeah. the, the picture is Report and card. Australia's um, environment laws are some of the weakest in the world. I mean, we just have to look at the way that the New South Wales government is destroying habitats for koalas, um, the Victorian government. There's also, there's a lot going on, I think, on Earth Matters. Just before us, they were having a, a chat about some of the things um, going down in, in Vic Forests too. Mm. So, um, yeah, on a state level, it's it's not the best. And then on a, a federal picture, we are, you know, internationally re- renowned as a climate laggard. So yeah. that's going to be a really interesting interview. And I think it's at 10 past 8. So yeah, that's stay right. tuned. 10. And I believe, yeah, Australian Conservation Foundation have um, looked a lot yeah, into the um, koalas and a lot of extinction of species as well. So I'm hoping mm. Jess can tell us a bit more about that. Makes me sad. It is. But yeah. donate donate your money, people, if you can, if you have the means, seriously, it, it makes a big difference to the work of these advocacy groups to be able to operate as they do and speak for the environment because, as we know, the institutions of power do not. Yep, yep, they're not doing the work. Mm. 
All right. And um, yeah, what do you have planned for the week, Jacob? I talked about my plans, oh. uh, my boring plans in Melbourne, but didn't get into yours. <laughs> <laughs> Funny you should ask. Um, I've actually booked a, a three-night getaway to Tasmania. Oh, nice. Yeah. So me and a group of friends are heading off and I am so excited. I cannot tell you how long it's been since I've had a break. I feel like I haven't had a second to breathe the last two months yep. between um, uni and I have a few jobs on the go at the moment as well. So I'm just really excited to uh, disconnect to everything. Oh, I should probably say reconnect, uh, but you know what I mean? <laughs> bit of both, maybe. A bit of a digital <laughs> detox. The phone's yeah. going on do not disturb and I intend to sleep in every day and then frolic around in the bush and explore Hobart. So Lovely. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm so keen. Um, and yeah, I will be away next week, um, but returning the week after. Excellent. Well, we'll miss you, but we'll hope you have a good trip. <laughs> <laughs> do not fear. I, I shall not be gone long. <laughs> All right, so shall we jump in? I might get started with a song this morning. Um, let's go with Lovers Everywhere from Farry Sanders.
You're listening to 3CR, and that was Barry Sanders with Lovers Everywhere. And now we're going to re-listen to an interview from our old co-host, Alice Golds. Um, Not old, former. (laughs) Um, And this is with Dr. Caroline Tully, who is an honorary fellow in the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies at the University of Melbourne. Uh, She's also a professional tapestry weaver at the Australian Tapestry Workshop and a witch and pagan priestess. Um, So let's have a listen. They're going to chat about the origins of Easter. I've always been curious about modern holidays and the origins of them. So this morning we'll be speaking to Dr. Caroline Tully and find out the origins of Easter. It wouldn't surprise you to know that it all started with a female goddess and now we have a male in her place. There's a feminist history in this patriarchal holiday and it's been completely forgotten. But I think it's really important that we don't forget where these holidays came from. And in order, in aid of that, I'm delighted to welcome my guest, Dr. Caroline Tully. And before we dive into all things pagan and the origin of Easter, could you tell us a little bit more about your area of studies and what actually attracted you to that particular area? Okay, well, actually, um, at, um, in my university role, I study ancient Mediterranean religions. And um, so... My origin, um, my interest in the origin of Easter is more from my pagan background, although it's been informed by um, my academic study. I found out more about it, which was why I went back to university as a mature age student in the first place, because I wanted to, um, you know, get the get the goods on ancient pagan religions from professionals rather than from actual pagans. Interesting. So, what about your pagan background then? How did you how did you start that? My actual pagan activity. Yeah. Well, um, when I was like 18, um, I met someone. I wasn't at all interested in supernatural things. But when I was 18, I met someone who had this library full of magical books. And I was like, what is this? This is intriguing because I hadn't heard of this. And I liked studying because I'd just finished year 12. So I was used to studying. And I just sort of started looking at his books and found it really interesting. And he was... Um, a well, he was a ceremonial magician, but he'd pr- previously been um, a witch, and so he ended up sort of being my mentor for about a year, and then he initiated me as a witch, and then I uh, then we moved to the country and we met some other witches, and that that's when I sort of they introduced me to the alternative lifestyle scene. That was in like the kind of probably eighty five onwards, and and then I, I just. Through them, really, I just met tons of Australian pagans and I've just been involved in it, like writing for pagan magazines for years and just, yeah, really involved with it like that. And my academic, a lot of pagans mistrust academics mm-hmm. and they feel that the academics are sort of dismantling paganism. And to an extent that is true because um, a lot of uh, pagan history has been a little bit amateur and it wasn't till 1999 when Professor Ronald Hutton wrote a book called Triumph of the Moon and he looked at the history of modern pagan witchcraft and it showed up that a lot of things that pagans believed were historically incorrect or not true. Um, it just sort of showed the construction of paganism because it really, contemporary paganism is, it's not the same as ancient paganism. It does have remnants of ancient paganism in it, but it's really a child of a book called The Golden Bough by... Um, a guy called um, 
um, oh God, what's his name? Sorry. <laughs> um, it's the last name is Fraser. J.G. Fraser. Anyway, it, anyway it's, um, it's, it's super complicated. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a, it's a hard question. Sorry, yeah. I've gone on a ramble. No, no, no. I like that. <laughs> but have, um, you seen, have you seen a wave of, of interest recently or in recent years? Yeah, definitely. Well, there was a boom in witchcraft... Um, in the late 90s. Um, we thought in Australia it was because Fiona Horne was publishing her uh, popular books on witchcraft and doing a lot of publicity. But it was actually happening in America and Britain as well, so I'm not really sure what was driving it there. But So there was a boom in the late 90s, early 2000s, and then in the last few years there's been a, a giant boom of a more feminist, intersectional witchcraft. A lot of it is American and they're very much on Instagram and a lot of them have businesses. So it's quite a different it's quite a different scene now. It's young women and young men, but mostly young women being super feminist. Mm-hmm. And there were feminist witches in the eighties, but they weren't like the main witchcraft scene. They were sort of a a was that side. like a niche. That was a pagan yeah. niche. Yeah. I mean they were influential but the neo paganism was really um quite heterosexual, man-woman mixed groups and these feminist-only groups, uh, women-only groups were there but they weren't the main thing. But now with younger women, they certainly are. Wow. That's really interesting. Um, And where Easter comes into paganism, so we know Easter now as a very mainstream Christian celebration, um, but... And I think actually in my experience, a lot of people that I know don't even register the Christianity part of it. It's just Easter eggs, the Easter bunny. How much chocolate can I get? How many Easter eggs did you get? But where did where did these symbols come from? And actually, where did the whole celebration start? Okay, well, we know Easter is meant to be about the death and resurrection of Jesus, who is a a Middle Eastern or a Near Eastern deity that's been adopted in Europe for centuries and centuries. Um, and I'll just give a bit of a background. Yeah, so, do. so Jesus. So the reason. Um, so that happened at around the spring. You know, Easter's around the spring equinox in the northern hemisphere, and that's because um, Jesus really was executed around that time, around the Hebrew uh, festival of Passover, which is also called Pesach, and you know. In some traditions, um, or Pesach, Passover, Pascal, the Pascal lamb. So the Christians sort of have adopted that terminology. But if we look at the Anglo-Saxons, they had um, the word Easter really comes from a goddess called Estra, and she's an Anglo-Saxon goddess, and she's a goddess of the east and of the dawn. And you might go, well, what's that got to do with Easter? Well, it's got to do with the spring equinox. So the spring equinox is like the dawn of the solar year. So if we look at the winter solstice, which is the darkest night of the year, when you know there's uh, the night is uh, much longer than the day, then after the winter solstice, the days get longer, 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 longer until the spring equinox, when days are equal and um, days and night are equal, and then after the spring equinox, um, the days become perceptibly longer up to the summer solstice, which is the longest day, and then they start to get shorter again. So the spring equinox is a bit like the dawn of the year because it's like the sunrise of the solar year. So so this goddess Erstra, she's 
um, got to do with the East. She might be the same type of goddess as the Hindu Ushas or the Greek Eos or the Roman Aurora. And what's really interesting about those goddesses is they're often, well, in the scholarship they're called predatory dawn goddesses. And saying predatory sounds a little bit um, bad because you don't usually say with male gods who sort of... Uh, have sex with humans. Um, yeah. <laughs> you don't really call them predatory, but these goddesses are called pre- the predatory dawn goddess because they often abducted um, attractive males and and made them come and live with them uh, in a supernatural realm. But what's interesting about those um, those particular males? They often died. Interesting. And it's a little bit interesting in regards to Jesus. You know, if we look at um, Mary as some sort of goddess, and then she's got this dying and rising sun, and if we look at um, Eos had a, a, she abducted a male called Tithonos and she asked Zeus to give him immortal life, but she forgot to ask to give him eternal youth. And so he just became older and older and older and older until he turned into a little cricket and he just was just chirping away. Wow. <laughs> and that always reminds me of the film um, The Hunger with Catherine Deneuve and David Bowie because she's a vampire and she's immortal for some reason, but she has these lovers who she obviously bites and turns into vampires. But say with, you know, in the film, David Bowie's her main lover, and she, but she, she can't make them, She's they're immortal, but she can't make them stay young. So they get older and older and older. And eventually she has to just put them in coffins up in the attic <laughs> of her room. And, um, but they're not dead. They're still alive. Still alive yeah. and kicking just in the coffins. So there's some sort of, this, the the dawn goddess has some sort of relationship with um, a dying and rising male figure, and you could possibly say it's the sun, you yeah, know. Yeah. And you know James Fraser, who I mentioned before, because I forgot his first name. Yeah. James <laughs> G. Fraser, who wrote the Golden Bear, he specifically linked the Christian myth with pagan myths um, to show that Christianity was just one of um, you know the greatest hits of ancient pagan religion and it wasn't really anything special, you know. Or original at all, yeah. Mm. And um, so do the symbols with the egg, I mean, the fertility, um, that because that's part of the spring equinox also mm. as a symbol, I believe. Yep. Um, so the eggs kind of speak for themselves, but what about the, the rabbit or the bunny? Where does that all sort of fit into it? Well, the rabbit apparently really derives from a... The, he- the Easter hare, which was brought to America by German immigrants and turned into the Easter Bunny, and then that was re-exported back to Britain and its colonies, and that's where we get the Easter Bunny. But again, um, eggs and rabbits, and the you know rabbits are very prolific, and um, you know eggs are a symbol of new life and that sort of thing. So I'm not sure why it was a hare in um, Europe, but apparently it was, mm. and. How has the modern story stripped um, all mention of women and women's power and fertility? Well, if we look at Christianity, I mean, well, Christianity is not, it's kind of anti, anti-woman, anti-sex. And Mary, of course, is the sexless great mother um, of Jesus. And, um, you know, she's not foregrounded in, although she's huge in Catholicism, but she's not foregrounded above Jesus. So, um it's just as, you know, Christianity took over from pagan religions, the goddesses were, um, you know, um, suppressed and wiped out and um, Christian doctrine didn't, you know, really want to mention any goddesses. I mean, it's quite interesting that, I mean, we've even got Mary at all 
as a um, supernatural being. Because, of course, she wasn't supernatural, but she sort of, you know, she ascended bodily to heaven and she lives up there. So she must mm. be <laughs> she must be supernatural. Um, yeah. So it's just really a matter of um, monotheist. The monotheistic religions aren't very goddess friendly. Like Judaism used to have goddesses when it was Hebrew polytheism. Um, but after the um, Hebrews were um, allowed to come back from captivity in Babylon, um mention of goddesses and, and goddess statues, um, you didn't see them anymore. But before that, um, there's evidence of goddess worship in Hebrew religion. So it's something to do with monotheistic religion. Because, um, they, you know, God, of course, is meant to be sexless, but, you know, everyone knows it's a man with a beard. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We all have the image. And when people say God the mother, they're like, what? Well, that's a bit <laughs> weird. Very controversial, Yeah. yeah. And um, with Estra, how would people actually celebrate her in ancient times and now as well, I guess? Well, I guess the thing is with her is a lot of scholars question. So she was mentioned by the Venerable Bede, who dates to between, you know, the late 600s and early 700s. And some scholars suggest uh, that that there's argument in in whether she really was a goddess at all. Um, But what people, you know, may have done... um, they just may have done sort of fertility rituals. Um, so it they may have been, you know, rituals involving flowers, sex, um, dancing. You know, this is before TV, so people were a little bit more um, easily pleased. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, so those sort of partying activities, you know, because everyone, so, say it's a rural community, they're having to do lots of farming and animal husbandry and these festivals in the year are a time to stop doing that party on and also also to eat meat a lot because a lot of um, people didn't eat that much meat except at festivals Mm. so it was it was um like a was there a sacrificial lamb or anything like that would they sort of have a big ritual and then a huge feast afterwards with yeah lots of dancing and sex well i'm not sure with um the anglo-saxons exactly what they did and also often these dawn goddesses say the mediterranean ones eos and ush uh the hindu i'm not sure about the hindu ushers but eos and aurora they're not like in the major pantheon they're sort of side gods i mean they're important but and they're old but they're not um Often they don't have cult, so they can appear in mythology, but there's not necessarily ritual going with them. Um, but the Angla, the the Norse um, Easter ritual was called Sigur Blot, and Blot means blood, and they often did some sort of blood sacrifice. And when you say blood sacrifice, it sounds really bad and sounds satanic, but that's because we have uh, Christian propaganda yeah. um, saying you know anything non-Christian is satanic, um, but. <laughs> Animal sacrifice in the ancient world was one of the main characteristics of ritual and really what that meant, let's just call it a barbecue. Yeah. It's not about hurting the animal. It's about killing it, cooking it and eating it in a uh, eating it with the gods. So um, we know the, um, the Norse, um, you know, had some sort of blood sacrifice. But so they didn't was- worship... Um, Australia, because she, she's Anglo-Saxon. Yeah. But, yeah. Would blood sacrifice include human sacrifice? <laughs> you know what? I'm not really sure. If you f- watch the film The Wicker Man, you would mm-hmm. say yes. Um, <laughs> human sacrifice, let me see. Well, you know, a lot of um, 
pagan religions, say in Mediterranean pagan religions, make a big deal of how they don't do human sacrifice. Um, I'm I can't even think of any human sacrifice examples. Um, there is a theory with the solar year that um, either a, you know a long, 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 long time ago, either a king or his representative was killed at the summer solstice before he became too old, and so before his potency waned, he'd be killed. He was the sacred king, and um, it sort of fits with the solar year. Uh, so he may have been sacrificed. Um, I'm not sure of exact examples. Mm-hmm. Mm. And as a witch yourself, um, how will you be celebrating the equinox? Well, let me just... Now, this is where it gets into a problem because, of course, in Australia, it's not the spring equinox. No. It's the autumn equinox. So the whole thing of having Easter um, and other European imported um, festivals in Australia is problematic because pagans... Um, because our seasonal celebration is specifically about the landscape and nature, we early on, you know, notice when people start practicing, they go, hang on a minute. Um, it's not the winter solstice in December, it's the summer solstice. So pagans sort of, that's been a big thing in Australia is, you know, what do we do with the, the seasonal calendar, which is called the wheel of the year? Mm-hmm. And we've had to kind of flip it or move it around six months so it matches up because, it, you know, it's an import from the Northern Hemisphere. So it matches up with the Southern Hemisphere seasons. But with the Christian calendar, no one seems to care that it's based on the seasons and has seasonal symbolism. Um, and they just have sort of plonked it on top of the Australian landscape. So that's why we spray paint snow on the windows in um, December, in midsummer here. Um, and that's why we're having a spring equinox festival in, in at the autumn equinox. And I, it's so annoying, but no one seems to care. They just don't care. When you say, you know, this is like, um, this is actually a spring festival. They're just like, I don't care. I'm not listening. They're not interested. Yeah. And also a lot of urban people... They're not really paying attention. They're like, oh, it's winter, I'm a bit cold. But they don't really, you know, make a big deal about it. They don't sort of just think about winter and, yeah. oh, what festival will, is a good winter festival. So it's a big problem. Um, and that's another thing with Halloween. It's so annoying. <laughs> I just refuse to acknowledge Halloween in Australia because it's Beltane um, at that time in Australia. Um, and... Um, you know, so that's October. Yeah. That's a early summer festival in reality. But yeah. Australians are, you know, woohoo, it's Halloween. It's which is, you know, a Celtic festival of death and early winter. And it just I find it so annoying. Yeah, it doesn't make <laughs> any sense. It's just layered onto a totally different calendar. Very interesting. Yeah. So it is a it's a problem. So we're going into the um We've just had the autumn equinox. We're going into the next seasonal festival according to pagan calendars, which is called Samhain. Um, and Christian, uh, the Christian calendar is going and doing a spring festival. Yeah. So how will you be celebrating Samhain or how did you celebrate okay. the autumn equinox? Well, I um, look at it as a sort of an underworld journey. So I would do something or did something that involves... Um, a sort of a, a, a descent to well, it has to be abbreviated, of course, because you know if you you're turning a mythological thing into a ritual, you you sort of um, 
abbreviate it so it can be acted out. So a descent or visualised, a descent to the underworld um, where you just sort of um, do a meditation in the underworld. So you might set up a ritual circle or something, um, invoke particular deities. So, for example, because I'm really more of a Mediterranean pagan, Demeter, Persephone and Hades, um, I'll give them offerings, I'll um, do an underworld journey, um, come back up again, you know, when I'm down there, see if I get any messages. It's also like a cleansing. It's like a personal um, purging, going into the underworld and coming back up. It's like a rebirth. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. There's a lot of public festivals um, you can go to if you want to do group activities in Australia, um, pagan festivals. Mm-hmm. Yep. And if um, our listeners are interested in finding out more about your own research or your workshops that you're putting on and anything like that, how how are they best to to follow what you're up to and to get in touch? Well, they can look at my academia page, which if you just Google Caroline Tully Academia, it comes up. So that's there's quite a lot of um, downloadable articles on there for free. Um, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Instagram, I'm all over social media. <laughs> <laughs> That's very helpful. We'll put links to Caroline's social media on the 3CR Monday Breakfast page also so you can find her and um, keep up to date with what she's up to. Caroline Tully, thank you so much for meeting with me today and, yeah, hope you have a lovely day. Thanks, you're welcome. And that was Alice talking to Dr Caroline Tully um, about the origins of Easter. Um, So good to have a re-listen to an interview from Alice. And I believe you're up next, Jacob. Yeah, so this month, as we know, refugees at the Park Hotel in Melbourne were finally released after nine long years in indefinite detention. And this decision was made in recent weeks, conveniently around the time that Scott Morrison announced the federal election to be held in May. While this is welcome news, many challenges lie ahead as the men seek to move on with their lives and return to some sense of normalcy. So I spoke with independent folk singer and refugee activist Dawn Barrington, who has been volunteering her time recently to support the released refugees. So we're here with Dawn Barrington. Thank you, Jacob. Thanks for inviting me on, actually. It's great to uh, actually meet you. Well, almost meet you. (laughs) I first met you, I think, way back in 2018 when you came to Newcastle to show a documentary that you made and you performed some songs. So that was almost four years ago now. Oh, my God, that is such a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, that is such a long time ago. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And I know you've been working tirelessly since then advocating for refugees in detention. What has your journey looked like over the last however many number of years and what inspired you to begin advocating for refugees? Uh, 2016, I first uh, learned about these uh, refugees that have been sent offshore. Well, I guess I knew about it before that, but I, it was sort of not, not on the radar, like many of us. A friend of mine, she started to make me more aware of the, the refugees and the situation was really bad. And she, I got a lot of respect for her. And I knew that she would be, um, it was going to be on cue, like, you know, and uh, so I was kind of thinking it can't be that bad. But then I thought I know my friend really well, so she wouldn't be lying. And so um, I then uh, by chance, one of the refugees started to message me and he, the musician Moz, Moz from Manus, and he started to message me. And that was when I started to learn 
and to find out how bad it really was. He, he was in a terrible way. Uh, they were being forced from the camp to new accommodation. Um, it was just horrible. And they had, uh, they were basically, they were saying, we, we can't go to the new camps because they were terrified for their lives because it wasn't safe uh, for them. And so they were holding their ground and then the uh, guards came in and trashed everything. They, they trashed the water, the tanks, took everything off them. And they literally had no food for 21 days. I think it was 26 days, actually. It was the worst time ever. And that was the point where I, I just felt like I had to do something. And I didn't know what I could do. And I thought maybe I could take music there. And then I was started protesting in my town with my friends every week. And we got a bit of backlash from the community because it was quite political back then. And uh, I decided if I could take a filmmaker and if I could uh, document it, then show it to my community in Denmark, down in you know the great southern of Western Australia, that they would be horrified and they would understand, you know, because it's only a small community. So that's that's how it all started, basically. Uh, I went there with the filmmaker. We produced a documentary and I met lots and lots of very sick refugees. And there's no way I could turn my back on that and just continued on. Yeah. Mm, so you went to, to Nauru and Manus Island with the, the filmmaker? Just went to Manus. You can't go to Nauru. Uh, Manus is a place where you... We didn't get visas, we just showed up. It's very difficult to get onto the island, and especially with a bag full of camera equipment. I went as a musician, and I said that I was filming on location. We didn't say we were going to Manus, we just went to Port Moresby. We got into Port Moresby, and then we went from there to Manus, because mm. it's in, you're in PNG then. Then I, when I came back that first time, I took the documentary down the central coast, around WA, and a year later, they were still there. I couldn't believe it. They were, by this time, I'm, I'm having regular contact with the guys. So I decided to go again. Um, and I happened to land just when the Medivac bill was passed through Parliament, where um, a, a Labour, some Greens, Senate, and some Independents uh, pushed through a legislation that all the uh, sick refugees could be brought to Australia by. Um, being assessed by a doctor and a specialist. And so that was um, the, the moment I landed. And so we, I was quite, we were quite busy. I went with another lady. We were quite busy getting lots of medical records and, um, you know, for, for the doctors for when they uh, were, you know, they, they, they needed, the doctors and their medical specialists couldn't go to Manus. They had to do everything on Zoom or uh, video chat with the refugees. So. We got as much as we could and we met lots more refugees and I could probably say in the two times I went, I would, I would have met hundreds of young men that were incredibly sick, very depressed, lost all hope. Um, they were many on sleeping tablets, many on antidepressants, many taking all sorts of medications for lots of different conditions, operations gone wrong. Um, it was just... Um, yeah, horrible. Mm. Yeah, unbelievable, actually. Yeah, it, would, yeah. it sounds like absolutely horrific conditions that they were keeping them in. And then I don't think yeah. there was much of an improvement being shipped off to the, the Park Hotel 
in Melbourne where we know a lot of the Medivac, well, all of the Medivac refugees have been released, thankfully. And I know you've been yeah. in contact with a lot of them this past week. How are they all feeling after such a traumatic uh, series of events? Yeah, well, a lot of the guys that just got released, I actually didn't know them um, because there are only a few left. I knew more of the earlier ones. But anyway, I have come to meet them all now and made and met quite a few a few times now. And when they uh, came out of the hotel, though, because I was at, I landed uh, when the first group was let out that was just a week ago I landed in Melbourne about a week ago and the first group came out then six days later the next group the last group came out and they're literally um they just look stunned uh very pale and thin and in almost in a daze it, it, I think it's I probably could say shock um and in the following days there's this sort of like why like why what was is this what it was all about you know like they're in a hotel room now where they where they've got a few weeks they've been released but they've been put into a motel in sunshine a crappy motel in sunshine and some are here at the essence hotel and it's like um three weeks plus 150 dollars each week for that three weeks and then they're on their own no uh centrelink at all and many of them are so sick there's no way they can work straight away some of them can and some of them are, you know, and they, um, yeah, they just come out and they had a lot of these guys were locked up in a hotel for almost three years after the six years on Manus and Nauru. And it's um, they a lot of the guys have said the three years in the hotel just did it for them. That was it. I won't say broke because they are resilient, strong, and they've done incredibly well. But that was the that's the the information that I'm getting was that it was the hotel time that was the worst and the most um, difficult to, to 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 navigate through and to survive basically. Yeah, mm, absolutely. And you mentioned um, that they have been sent to another hotel, one hundred and fifty dollars a week. What kind of support are they receiving after they leave? Uh, from the government, pretty much nothing. So there's um, the settlement agents that are that are um, contracted by the government, or or that or receive funding from the government. I want they're not contracted by; they receive funding. They are then given the job to help the guys get a bank account open, to get their Medicare card, and to get their IMI cards and um, catch the bus and train or something once. It's very limited services and it takes a long time. So they're sort of waiting around for this because you, you basically can't do anything till you've got ID. We all know how impossible it is to do anything if you haven't got ID. And, mm. and even like without their VAX ID, you know, they're, they're, they've got the VAX, but they haven't got their Medicare, so they can't show it on my, they haven't got on my gov. You know, there's so many things that you need just to actually, you know, live each day like, you know, so, um, and of course, you need money as well to buy food and stuff. It's about dignity as well, you know. That these guys, they don't want to. They don't want anything from the people. They just want to get out and work and and live their lives. They don't want to be. They don't want to be relying on people like you know. It's the trouble is the whole system that they are being held under or have been held under, and even now, like they're restricted to a certain extent. Um, it's all part of this system that sort of. Doesn't doesn't allow for agency. It sort of takes away dignity. It takes away so much of your of who, what makes us human. 
and I think that's the worst thing um, about this. And some guys are being put into community detention as well for some reason. There's no, there's no, we don't know why. Uh, community detention is means that they're still in detention, but they're in a house in a suburb somewhere on their own, and they get, they might get, they get eighty six percent of the new start allowance. Hmm. It it just sounds like quite an arbitrary and very disorganized system and I think you pretty much said it all like if they can't have dignity and have independence then you know what's the point in, in being released um but yeah, what do you think yeah. are some of the main challenges I mean you mentioned a bit before logistically like getting a vax certificate and um medicare card and things like that but what are some of the other main challenges that are they're facing moving forwards well, the, it's what, what I've noticed from the guys that were released last year, because uh, I've been, been around, you know, with a couple, is like the first things that you need is you do need ID. So, for example, if you want to get your own phone card, because a lot of the guys that have got mobile phones, they would have their SIM cards activated by an advocate on the outside. And the first thing a lot of them want is I want my own in, in my name, you know, of course. But you have to have uh, forms of ID. And then... For example, Telstra or Optus, they don't accept the uh, IMI card as ID. So you need them to try and get another ID. So they've got to go to the Services Australia and go and get a, an ID card, which you can get if you're over 18. Uh, but then you still need other five forms of ID to get that ID card, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> which means you, you need like a bank statement with your address on it. And they haven't got an address because they're in a hotel, you know. So it's just like all these obstacles. And then once you've got all that together with your you've got your Medicare card, you've got a bank card, you've got your IMI card, and then you've got an ID card. And then you've got maybe uh, something, a, a, a letter from the bank, maybe with your address on I suppose you could use the hotel address. I don't know. Uh, and then, of course, the next thing is that there's a, a, in, in Melbourne, there's an amazing group of women called Sister Bridgetine. The Bridgetine sisters, they actually are organising the accommodation. So ASRC um, committed to helping with funding so that they could pay the first month's rent. And then the Bridgetine sisters are helping them to find accommodation. But when you have 36 guys released in a week, that's a lot of people to find accommodation for. Um, so that's another obstacle. And then when they want to find work, they, they're on bridging visas. It's a six-month visa. So they're allowed to work, but they're not allowed to study. And so they, the trouble is, I noticed when I was helping these guys apply for work, I put, you get a resume and it says, what have you, what's your last job? And they've been, on, they've been locked up for nine years. So you're trying to find ways to be creative about, well, what, what did you do when you were living in Iraq, say, for example? Well, I was in the army. So you try and find all the skills that they might have done there. And then like, well, what did you do on Manus? Did you cook in the kitchen? Trying to find ways to give their parts of their character. Like, you know, they might have done the teamwork in the kitchen. Like, you know, whatever you can find. They might, they might have got a license, a driver's license on Manus as well. So it's really hard to write a resume um, when there's nothing to put from the last nine years, you know? And then also a lot of jobs that I was looking at applying for, you have to have a car. And of course, you, that means you gotta get a license. <laughs> it's like, so that's another, you know, so it's just this, all this, this and, and, and you've got like all, lots of guys, you know, it's, it's like in the last 12 months, 200 have been released. So it's, it's really tough for them, yeah.
Yeah, my God, I couldn't imagine having to start from literally zero paperwork and, you know, being locked up for nine years. It would be so challenging trying to piece together a resume. So how do you think public perceptions of this issue have changed in Australia? Because I think this, the release of these refugees seems to be conveniently timed with the, the announcement of the federal election. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah, it's... Um... Absolutely. I think the public perception has changed. And I, I, I've noticed it in the last year, especially like I stand on the street in Fremantle every Friday with my, we do our protest and lots of people all over Australia do the same thing. And we've noticed a change in how many people are hooting their horns at us, how many people are sort of going, yes, it's disgusting, it's terrible. And I've been doing music talks events for the last couple of years in Western Australia. and I've done them on the East Coast before COVID. And I've noticed from back three, four years ago to now that I've got a lot more interest, a lot more interest from people that are liberal voters as well. So and a lot of people um, just I think it's because it's nine years now. and It's so arbitrary and it's so ridiculously um, cruel and, and expensively cruel. You know, like it's I think people are really starting to go, well, why? This is, you know, why are we doing this? And then nothing is deserves to be locked up for that long ongoing you know like maybe when it was five or six years maybe somehow it, it didn't kind of seem as bad for them all I don't know but anyway there's a lot of groups working behind the scenes as well writing to ministers writing to members of parliament putting pressure on all over Australia and I think that it's sort of come to a point where there's enough people now that um, they need to make uh, they need to make a decision and do take action and do something. Mm. And how can we continue to support refugees in the future? Yeah, I think what we need to do is we need to change the whole narrative because uh, from two thousand and two, um, when John Howard decided we'll decide who comes here, uh, there's been this story being made up by by the uh, the each prime ministers saying it's illegal you know they're illegal and even in their letters when they get their visa renewal you're illegal we need to change that we need to bring it back to they they are irregular maritime arrivals they're not illegal they're asylum seekers we don't put asylum seekers with illegal migrants you know if i come to australia from the uk and i don't do the procedures i'm illegal but if you're an asylum seeker it's separate so what's happened over the last 20 years is, is that it's been slowly more and more um, pressure put on these on, on the on the people that are seeking asylum and pushing them into this category that they aren't and it's never been illegal to seek asylum and I think that we need to m take a stand and we need to ourselves maybe think about who we are because if we will accept um, this kind of treatment towards people just because they've got a different coloured skin, you know, because there's been a whole different response with the Ukrainian refugees. And I think absolutely we should receive refugees no matter who they are. Um, however, we've just seen a bit of a difference in the response to people who are uh, white, got white skin and, you know, live in Europe. So I think that, um, yeah, I think it's all part of the colonistic attitude that we have. Maybe we need to start thinking about how can we decolonize ourselves, you know? Dawn, thank you so much for joining us today on the show. I want to finish off by playing one of your songs and I was hoping you could introduce it for me and just say 
um, your name, you're on 3CR, and this is my song. Okay, so I'm Dawn Barrington. It's wonderful to be on 3CR Radio. ...time with the Bridgidine Asylum Seeker Project. That's B-R-I-G-I-D-I-N-E. Um, and you can check them out at www.basp.org.au. Some other organisations that are really good to support are the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. Um, you can check them out asrc.org.au or Refugee Voices as well, which is a refugee-led advocacy organisation, refugeevoices.org.au. So some really important causes to get behind there. And the time is 8am. We're going to jump to a song now. Take a look. Yeah, we're going to listen to Emily Waramara. And when we come back, we're going to hear from Claudia.
You're listening to 3CR, and we just heard from Emily Wormara. And now over to you, Claudia. Thanks, Ella. Well, with Easter approaching, you might be about to dip into a chocolate binge this weekend. Our next guest describes chocolate as our modern love drug, something we enjoy on special occasions and with people we love. But while nearly all of us covet the taste of chocolate, how much do we think about the way it is made? Dr. Stephanie Perkis is an expert in assessing the social and environmental aspects of chocolate manufacture. She is a senior lecturer in accounting at the University of Wollongong and is part of the team working on the Chocolate Scorecard, an easy-to-use ranking of how popular chocolate stacks up when it comes to ethical production. Welcome, Stephanie. Thank you, Claudia. Now, before we launch into hearing about the Chocolate Scorecard, can you tell us a little about the chocolate supply chain and some of the concerns? Yeah, for sure. So um, the chocolate, um, the cocoa industry is a real big concern um, in the fight to end modern slavery. So what a lot of people don't know is the chocolate that you consume the supply chain goes and goes and goes. It's, there's a number of different tiers, but it starts with cocoa, which is produced, I think there's about 75% of the cocoa is produced in West Africa, in countries such as Ghana. Um, and in these countries, there are millions of children working on the farms. These children age from six to 16, for example. They're using machetes, they're exposed to chemicals, um, the farmers themselves do not earn a living income. So the living income is, you know, you look at the US, the US dollar of about $2 a day is a living income. A lot of these farmers are earning less than that. There's issues in the way of um, chemical management, the exposure to chemicals, pesticides, um, and there's also a lot of deforestation and issues related to climate change as well within this industry. And so the Chocolate Scorecard, um, it was the initiative of an Australian group called Be Slavery Free. Can you tell us a little bit about the beginnings of the project and what the purpose was when they set out? Yeah, Be Slavery Free is an NGO, a charity group um, run by Carolyn and Fuzz Keto. Um, and they work with several different, I think there's about 30 NGOs in the fight to end combat modern slavery. Um, so they do a lot in the way of um, lobbying government in, the, in relation to the Modern Slavery Act, for example, um, and they look at a number of different industries such as solar panels, fashion, and so on. So five years ago they started the scorecard after recognising the issues of modern slavery in the industry um, as a way of helping companies improve, um, as a way of providing awareness for consumers, helping investors make socially responsible investment decisions. Um, and the scorecard has definitely matured over those last five years. Um, I was brought on as an academic partner just this year to kind of help out, grow the team. We were able to interview, survey more companies, collect more data, and we had a really long extensive list. So... Yeah, And you were telling us yesterday that um, the thing that caught the uh, eye of the Slavery Free Group was your work looking into Nestle. Can you tell us a little bit about that case study and why that caught their attention? 
Yeah, I worked with a team of academics, um, John Jamay and Chrissy from um, the UK. And we read, I think it was in 2015, there was an article that was produced in one of the telegraphs, uh, one of the um, newspaper articles. And it had said, Nestle on their fight to combat child labour, blah, blah, blah. And there was this article that spoke about Nestle's actions. And then at the tiny, in tiny print at the bottom of it, it said this author of the newspaper article was a guest of Nestle. And I thought, oh, how convenient. Um, so we started looking into Nestle, what they were writing, what they were producing, how their CSR reports looked and found that a lot of what they were saying was actually um, greenwashing. It, it was there for a purpose of legitimation to make themselves look good when really their actions didn't follow what they had written on the ground. Um, and after we published that paper, it was in a critical accountability journal. Um, the directors from Be Slavery Free gave us a call and asked if we would be interested in exploring the co-industry in a little bit more detail. Mm. So can you tell us about this chocolate scorecard? How does it work and how do you determine a good egg from a bad egg when it comes to <laughs> sustainability and, and ethics? Yeah, so the chocolate scorecard has included 38 companies this year. They are the world's largest cocoa and chocolate um, brands and manufacturers. So it does include the big names that everyone is aware of, your Nestle's, your Mondelis, which make Cadbury, your Mars and things like that, but it also includes um, cocoa manufacturers and traders as well. So who your smaller companies like Daryl Lee and things like that will purchase their chocolate from. So we've got the biggest global brands and manufacturers. Whenever we assessed the issues with modern slavery and environmental damage in the cocoa industry, we also got experts to advise on you know, exactly what those themes looked like, exactly what we should be exploring in the company's actions and policies. And we broke them down into six areas. So we've got trans, um, traceability and transparency, living income, child labour, deforestation and climate change, agroforestry and agrochemicals um, and, and chemical management. So I could go into them if you wanted, but it's a long kind of methodology um, so we spoke to companies. We didn't want it to be a name and shame or punish exercise. We really wanted companies to do well because when they start doing well, they then start improving their actions and things like that because we're not out to boycott chocolate, for example. We're out to improve the, the, the lifestyle of the farmers on the ground and the environment around it. So we collected all this data from companies, surveys, we had interviews with them and we graded each theme and then we allocated different coloured eggs. Um, so a, a, a broken egg is for the companies that unfortunately didn't want to participate, kind of lacked their transparency, weren't super keen um, to do so. We gave three of those away. Um, the red egg needs to catch up with the industry. They don't have policies on child labour, for example. They have no idea what a living income in West Africa looks like. And then it goes orange, yellow is kind of starting to get there. They're improving their policies. But green is really leading the industry. So their policies are actually followed through with 
good significant action to combat child labour, to map out the forests and how much deforestation is happening and so on. Um, so we graded them all. We gave everyone a good, a green egg, a yellow, orange, based on kind of an average score of those. So they're all in the list. They're all 38 of them. And so who got a green egg and dare I say, who got the uh, bad egg rankings? So, so the best egg went to this company, Beyond Good. And a lot of these companies, just to note, uh, it is a global scorecard. So for Australian residents, we might not see a lot of all of these good eggs and, and whatnot in our shopping um, centres and, and Woolworths and things like that. So Beyond Good got the best egg because they have probably the easiest to manage supply chain. They grow their cocoa in Madagascar and then produce it in Madagascar. So their, trans, their transparency and their traceability is it's a very small supply chain. They know exactly what's happening on the ground and so on. So, so their monitoring and their action is a lot better. Then we have Alter Ego and Tony's Chocoloni, which you can buy at stores like IGA. Um, they're good companies. Alter Ego, for example, is 100% organic, so they have no chemicals, no pesticides um, in their production. Whittaker's, Ferrero are kind of green and then your yellow eggs, which are not too bad. And Nestle, surprisingly as well, also received a yellow egg this year for their improvements. The, the bad broken eggs went to, for the second year running, this Stork company. Um, and Stork is a producer of Weathers and a few other brands that we probably wouldn't recognise. Participate. <laughs> provide some better sustainability. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So speaking of that, how can listeners find out about the scorecard? Can they access it through the internet or? Yeah, if you go to www.chocolatescorecard.com, it's all available online. So you'll have the scorecard there. There's actual blogs on each of the themes. So you can really knuckle down on what living income is, how much child labour is happening um, and so on, what deforestation looks like in the cocoa industry um, and there's a methodology that we used as well if you're interested in the research side of things. And are there other actions that listeners can take to help these, these causes and let chocolate companies know how they feel about the um, supply chain and the sustainability of the products yeah for sure so it's not just about buying your the best chocolate obviously the ones we, we will advise buying the best kind of green eggs if you can but you know you can um, share the scorecard you can twitter or facebook your favorite chocolate companies um, to tell them that they need to improve you know if you're sitting on a couple million dollars and you want to make investment decisions then maybe your social investment decision is going to help the industry more than you know helping some rich owner of a chocolate manufacturer fill their pockets with extra money <laughs> well thank you so much um, we've just skimmed the surface of the project um, but I believe you'll be doing some more writing and the conversation so we'll be able to follow up with you um, when that is published that was Dr. Stephanie Perkis from the University of Wollongong. 
talking to us about the Chocolate Scorecard, your guide to ethical chocolate production. And I, I hope that's helpful for any listeners who will be buying eggs or eating eggs uh, over the next weekend. And uh, even if you're not uh, celebrating Easter Sunday, um, I'm sure there are lots of chocolate lovers out there who will be eating chocolate at some other time. So thanks very much. Now back to Ella. Thanks, Claudia. And now we're going to be speaking about the State of Environment Report. And we're joined this morning by Jess Abrahams from the Australian Conservation Foundation. Uh, He's a nature campaigner um, and he's joining us now. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Breakfast, Jess. Can you hear me? I'm here. Thanks, Ella. I can. All right. Um, So the State of the Environment Report is a report released every five years. The government's required to conduct it and release it. Um, It looks at various uh, key indicators for the environment. Um, The Morrison government, despite having this report since December, are yet to release it. Um, I think a lot of people are under the belief that this is a politically motivated decision uh, to avoid more bad press ahead of the election. Um, Now, can we start off by hearing a bit about what the State of Environment report is? Who normally conducts it and what kind of information do we normally get? Um, These State of the Environment reports are a really critical snapshot of the health of the Australian environment. They come out every five years and they're actually written into our national environment law um, that every five years one of these reports has to be um, produced. And they're commissioned um, by independent scientists and they literally take years and a huge team of people cataloguing, describing, assessing the health of ecosystems, everything from Antarctica to tropical reefs, from air pollution to biodiversity, the health of our land. And they provide a really important assessment of how we're going managing our environment. And listen, there's no surprise. Um, Each five years, these reports come out and say, we're in trouble. Things are not looking good. The trends are going backwards. And these are the urgent steps we need to take. Sadly, it seems, each five years, no matter what these reports say, governments seem to ignore the advice that's contained within them. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty um, depressing to hear. Um, and as you said, yeah, the um, previous reports have been pretty damning. Um, and regardless of whether this report has been released, we do have plenty of information on the state of our environment, and it's not good. Um, a recent investigation from the Australian Conservation Foundation uh, looked at the extent of endangered species habitat destruction. Uh, can you tell us a bit about what you found out? We gathered data that is meant to be publicly available, but it's actually very hard to obtain. Um, From the last 10 years, so the period of the last two State of the Environment reports, and we wanted to look at how much habitat for our threatened species had actually been approved for destruction. Now, each year, each five years, these State of the Environment reports warn that habitat destruction is one of the main threats to our most um, vulnerable species. Obviously, if koalas have got no trees to live in, um, koalas are going to go endangered. Now, we found a gobsmacking 50,000 hectares of koala habitat had been approved for destruction by the Federal Environment Minister, whose job it is to protect koalas and other um, vulnerable threatened species um, over that 10-year period. And what's worse is we found that the rate of 
um, approval for destruction of habitat was actually increasing from, um, you know, the first five-year period to the more recent five-year period. So the situation is actually getting worse. And we describe this um, state as if the government was aggravating extinction rather than, you know, addressing the biggest threats to our endangered species, which are habitat destruction and climate change. The government's actually making decisions to clear more habitat, um, pollute more greenhouse gases and it's no wonder that our um, the plight of our not just our threatened species but the health of our whole environment is declining and going backwards there is there oh sorry you go no sorry continue um and there's look we know what the solutions are in in this case we know that with strong national environment laws that actually protect the habitat and funding to recover um these species and restore their habitat, we can actually turn around the trajectory of um, Australia's um, declining and disappearing um, wildlife. But governments seem to be um, hell-bent on making the situation worse, not making it better. Yeah, and yeah, it's pretty shocking when we've had a huge amount of the country ravaged by bushfires last year. We heard a lot um, about how many koalas were killed during this and, um, yeah, to hear the government have been not only not helping but actually making it worse is pretty depressing to hear. It, it is frustrating and climate change is one of those threats that's um, compounding the situation for habitat destruction. Climate change is making extreme weather events um, more and more regular, whether it's fires or floods or droughts. We know climate change is making things worse. The other big threats to our um, vulnerable species are things like invasive species um, and even climate change can make the situation for invasive species worse because they're making um, habitats more suitable and making the environment more suitable for invasive species. So across the board, um, the, the situation is getting worse. There's, there is always some good news in these reports um, and, you know, we can't shy away from the fact that, you know, we are making progress in some areas, um, but on the whole, the, the decline is going in the wrong direction and... This report now, with the calling of the election, this report um, won't be tabled. The government's in caretaker mode. But it will mean that the report has to be tabled um, in the next term of government with the, with the next environment minister, whether that's um, a Liberal or a Labor environment minister. It doesn't matter. This report will be tabled in the new parliament. And it will actually set the scene. It'll actually um, mark the, the challenge for that environment minister and, um, you know, while it's very frustrating that this report hasn't come out before the election, um, in some ways, if it come, when it comes out after the election, it will set the tone for the next government. Yeah. And so at this stage, we're not going to see the report until after this election. Is that right? That's correct. Um, it, look, there are, there's some technicalities. The report has to be tabled within 15 sitting days. Um, we no longer have any more sitting days, um, so it'll, the, the clock starts again under a new parliament. So I think we'll expect to see this report in late June when parliament, um, the new parliament is recalled. Um, obviously, we're not going to know the outcome of, um, you know, his government, but um, either way, the report still has to get tabled. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, as I said, yeah, regardless of um, the report, I think the government's priorities when it comes to the environment are pretty clear and um, Australians can go armed with this information to the election. Um, the report generally looks at 12 key areas. Um, what else do we know from these areas? Look, um, we know that um, biodiversity in Australia is in, is in terrible shape. 
Um, Australia's got the worst uh, record for mammal extinction of any country on Earth. Um, I think we rank third overall for extinct species. Um, and we're mm-hmm. one of the world's... In fact, we're the world's only developed nation that's a global deforestation hotspot, which means we're clearing huge tracts of habitat. Um, Queensland and New South Wales in particular are seeing massive swathes of vegetation destroyed um, for agriculture and mining. And in many cases, these projects aren't even being um, assessed or approved under national environment law, even though they are the habitat of threatened species. Um, I expect the State of the Environment report will also give indicators on air pollution, on, um, I understand there's a new chapter on extreme weather events, and obviously in the last five years we've experienced um, the the true extremes from flood to fire. Look, one of the things that we're um, hopeful to see in this latest report, um, and there is uh, the role of um, a positive note, is the role of Indigenous people in um, knowledge and management of Australia's natural environment. Um, I think for the first time there's an Indigenous co-author of the report and each of the chapters um, has been um, co-authored with Indigenous um, authorship. So, look, that is a positive thing and, you know, one of the solutions definitely to the environmental challenges we're facing is that we um, listen to, learn from and um, manage the environment um, with um, Australia's um, Aboriginal traditional owners. And so that is one positive thing I think we'll be looking for in the report. Yeah, absolutely. And um, on that note, what can we do on an individual level? Look, I think um, with an election, obviously just weeks away, um, you know, this is the chance uh, in our democratic system that we really can um, have the biggest impact. Um, so, you know, obviously I encourage people to vote mindfully about which party's got the best policies on the environment. And also, you know, there's always the um, chance in an election period if you've got a candidate's forum where you can actually ask a candidate who's vying for your vote, if it's a um, formal forum or if you're, they're in the supermarket or the shopping centre shaking hands, ask them questions about the environment. What are they going to do to turn around... Um, the dire health of Australia's environment to protect our most endangered species. Um, you know, this is an exciting time in our democracy, um, an election period. So um, if you get the chance, um, grill those who are seeking your vote what they're going to do to protect the environment. Yeah, absolutely. All right, thank you so much for joining us this morning, Jess. appreciate it. My pleasure. Great. And that was Jess Abrahams, a nature campaigner with the Australian Conservation Foundation with, yeah, some pretty damning news. Um, Though, yeah, as you pointed out, there are some positives and I think the big one is that, yeah, we can still make a change. Um, Mm, Absolutely. Time's running out, but, yeah, it's not too late. Yeah, and and such a... um, I'm so happy to hear that Indigenous people are having more and more of an impact in the environmental space or more recognition, I should say, because I absolutely agree with Jess's point that it's integral moving forwards that uh, incorporating that knowledge of the land and that knowledge of the systems um, that was, you know, developed over hundreds of thousands of years Mm. by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. It's so important. So I'm really happy to see that those perspectives were incorporated into the report. Yeah, absolutely. It's nice to hear. It's You said it's been a long time coming and it's. Um, I think we've still got a long way to go, but it's nice to hear it's happening more. Mm, but overall, quite a damning picture. <laughs> and I, um, I agree, we need to vote 
um, very consciously coming up in May. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, um, yeah, says a lot about the government if their response is just to, um, yeah, conceal the information for as long as possible, um, Mm. as opposed to actually taking action. (laughs) Not surprising, uh, but yes, as you said, disappointing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, I think that's all we've got time for this morning. But thanks so much for joining us, listeners. Thank you to all our guests. And we'll be back with you next week. Thank you. Stick together. Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.